Hi. You can be a Aurora? Yeah. All right. Let yourself go, Aurora. Unfortunate. G'day. I'm Aurora. <laughs> I mean, I'm Aurora. I don't know why she has a British accent. Um, tonight we're reading Micah 6, 6 to 8. Is that right, sir? Phew. Verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sins of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Isn't she adorable? Tonight we have a, what we call a freebie. That means we're in between our uh, exegetical series, which means I get to choose the topic. Um, and this is a topic that's been on my mind. It was kind of ironic. We had two grown men up here doing voices of little girls. Um, but I don't know, God's funny like that. Um, I want to talk about what it means to be a man. What makes a man? What do we mean by that when we ask that question? Um, and particularly, what does it mean to be able to stand before God for a man and say, I live my life the way that you wanted me to as a man? So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to explore that question. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you that you love us, that you sent your son to be an example for us and to show us the way to you. We pray you open our hearts to what you have to say today, Lord, and open up the words that are coming for our hearts to us as well. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So... What makes a man? That seemed like a good question to ask. Um, and to be clear, we're not just asking what is a human or even what is a male human. Uh, we mean to ask, what is it that a human male, a man, can do with his life that everyone, men and women and especially God, would approve of is exactly the kind of thing that men should do? What is manly as opposed to simply childish or womanly or simply good? Uh, what does the kind of man look like whom we should want our sons and our grandsons and our nephews and our brothers turning into? Oceans of ink have been spilled about this topic to the point where if you go to the library looking for a book on manliness or go to Kurong looking for a book on Christian manliness specifically, then there will be so many options so widely varied with so many different conclusions you won't know where to begin. So you may very well disagree with some of the things I have to say tonight and I invite you to come and talk to me. I would love that. Um, some of it's going to necessarily be some men are like this, women are like this stuff. Um, this always provokes some strong feelings, but again, I'd love to discuss things with you after if you uh, find something objectionable. But I don't really think it's that bad, so come and talk to me either way. But as followers of our Lord Jesus, we should desire um, an understanding of manliness and womanliness as well for that matter, but manliness tonight, that God would approve of and would reward at the end of a man's life live this way in God's service. So before we look at what it means to be uh, a man specifically, 
today. We should look about what it's meant historically, like what it's meant for all of time up until this point. Because you'll hear a lot of talk now and around the place in the media about a crisis of masculinity. Um, and that's kind of the thing we're addressing here. So for example, from the sort of the beginning of time through the age of Abraham and David and Jesus and Augustine and Martin Luther, all the way up to about maybe 50 years ago, for thousands of years in every country in the world with very little exception, there were a few things that were just sort of understood to be true about men and what it meant to be a man. There were kind of assumptions. It wasn't like a code that everyone taught, but these were just things that were apparent in nature and the way that people lived. And I've got three of them here for you. That's the next slide. The ancient assumptions about men. That men are stronger than women, men are disposable, and men who cannot control their strength or embrace their disposability are lower than animals. Some of that's pretty confronting. Some of that's very confusing. But I'm going to talk about that, and we'll break it down a little bit. Now, these are assumptions that are ancient, um, not necessarily true in every way, but certainly something that was expected. And when we say that men are stronger than women, this is not a dig against women. This is not an attack. This is a reality of the world that would be foolish to deny. Everyone kind of knows this, because boys and girls grow up kind of similar, and then puberty kicks in and everything changes. Women go down an entirely different biological road that makes them capable of creating life inside them, which is a pretty impressive trick. And all the characteristics, <laughs> all the characteristics associated with motherhood come with that. Um, women end up smaller than men, considerably less muscle, particularly upper, bottle, upper body muscle. Um, they have a much harder time biologically building muscle and burning fat. Um, men get a different DNA blueprint. Our DNA has outsourced most of the life-creating material to the woman half of the species. Uh, so the man gets to do a lot more of the providing and protective part, genetically speaking. We end up taller on average. We end up with a lot more upper body strength for hitting, throwing, lifting, and smashing things. <laughs> Serena Williams on her best day serves at about 200 kilometers an hour. Andy Roddick serves on his best day at about 250. The women's deadlift record, that's like the lift straight to like straight back, just up to here, the most you can sort of lift to a straight back. The women's deadlift record is 305 kilograms. That's a lot of weight. Um, men's is 524. That's all right. Well, I got more to say, so hang in there. Um, that's a lot. Like, it's still, still a lot to be 305. Like, I could not deadlift 305. Well, probably not. Um, but, but that's about three-fifths of the men's record there. And when your DNA um, goes, <laughs> runs through a boy during puberty, it wants him to end up capable of fighting off predators that might attack the tribe or chasing a gazelle for 15 hours until the gazelle dies of exhaustion to drag that back home. And that would make it easier for the tribe to, um, to survive, to have half the species able to do that while the other half took care of the matter of creating life, which again, pretty good trick. It also means that once it becomes easier for people, for tribes, for humans, as they develop to survive by growing food or mining coal or building houses or most of these activities that tend to um, be done better by people who can lift more things and swing things harder, these things are done by men. And so men are stronger than women, at least in that sense. Number two kicks in then, however. Men are disposable. Now, the fact that these things are done by men, because men are better suited to them, is just fine by men, for most part, because women create children, and well, not on their own exactly. Um, 
But it's fair to say that the women do the biological heavy lifting in that department. This means that if you're going to have kids to look after you when you get old, then you need yourself a woman. Um, and if a city or a nation or a culture wants to have another generation of men to mine the coal and take the trash out at the other end of this one, then that city and nation and culture needs to disproportionately value those women. And that means that men are disposable, which is good because the culture needs to dispose of them. And that's kind of a loaded term, but don't freak out. Disposable here doesn't mean like a disposable napkin, like worthless to throw away. It means the things that men have classically been expected to do through most of human history, fight tigers, mine coal, plow fields by hand, run out and hit each other with axes. Um, these are all the kinds of things that either kill you suddenly or slowly. Sometimes you get the tiger, sometimes the tiger gets you. Sometimes you inhale coal dust for many years and you get black lung and you cough for three years and then you die. Um, Maybe you've been plowing fields by hand for 30 years and there goes your back and suddenly it hurts so much to stand up you can barely think and you're just like that forever. Um, maybe you were pretty handy with an axe on the battlefield for a long time but then a trebuchet knocks your legs off and you're done. None of this is a very attractive prospect uh, for men. And so selling it to them is not the easiest thing. So cultures make a kind of an implicit deal with men. It tells them, here's the trade-off we're going to offer you. You're going to be prepared to be disposable for the nation, for our culture, um, and in return, you'll be given an extra kind of special respect. Your family will praise and appreciate you for doing the hard work that women and children cannot do or couldn't do as easily, but that will slowly kill you. And if you ride out to war to protect the country while the women and children are safe at home, you'll be regarded as a hero whether you live or die or come back injured. We're going to build an idea that um, man involves being an extraordinarily self-sacrificial, sometimes self-destructive in some cases, and as long as you strive towards that ideal, everyone is going to regard you as worthy and honorable. That's sort of been the implicit deal just about all around the world, just about for all of time. And that was a pretty good deal, so men took it, and it worked pretty well for a fairly long time. And for thousands of years, cultures men took this trade of risking their health and their lives and degrading both of them over time to do these things that protected the country's resources and the women they loved and uh, the vulnerable people in their society to make them thrive and to make them comfortable. That's a historical reality. But the third part of this is that men who can't control their strength or who don't embrace that disposability, that self-sacrificial attitude, are regarded as kind of worse than animals. And that's important because here's the problem. Men are stronger than women. Some men are way stronger than most men. But the idea that men should regulate their behavior, that they should use their strength for the good of others, and especially for the good of women, this is not an idea that all men will necessarily embrace. So the cultures have built into them this idea that um, it's the reverse, in fact, of the respect you'd get for obeying it. If you disappoint this ideal of manhood, then you are scum. And that's probably a fair enough assessment in many of these cases. You're talking about people who abandon their comrades on the field of, field of battle, or they don't look after the weak people who need to be protected. If you use your strength for evil, if you reject this sacrificial attitude from how you live your life, historically, the world thinks of you as less of a man. And men who use their strength to hurt and oppress weaker people are hated and loathed, especially by other men. Now, probably the manliest chapter in the Bible is Genesis 34, in my opinion. That's Jacob and his children traveling in the land of the Hivites. Um, or Hivites, preferably. 
There's a guy called Shechem. He's the son of a local leader called Hamor. Shechem sees Dinah. That's one of Jacob's daughters. And he accosts her. He rapes her. Uh, Hamor, the leader of that tribe, he comes to Jacob and he says, look, mistakes were made. Let's marry these kids off. We'll call it even. We'll combine our tribes. We'll pretend this didn't happen. Jacob is inclined to agree because he doesn't want to ruin relations with the nearby tribes. But Dinah's brothers, Simeon and Levi, are, the scripture says, shocked and furious. And so they get a little crafty and they pipe up and they say, well, if our tribes are going to combine, then you and all of your tribe, you need to be circumcised so you can join our tribe. Hamor decides, well, if this is going to stop a war, because this is the kind of thing you'd go to war over, then fine, all the men in that tribe will get circumcised. All the men in the tribe get circumcised, and then Simeon and Levi come and attack the city while they're all lying around recovering and wipe them out completely. Pretty rude. Um, proportionate response? Maybe. Jacob comes to his sons. He says, you boys have caused me so much trouble. Everyone's going to be really angry at us now. All the, the surrounding tribes are going to think of us as crazy, vengeful barbarians. They say to their father, should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? And then the chapter ends. They get the last word because they're right. They are right, at least even if the specific justice of that action is debatable, they are right that the principle of abuse of strength against a vulnerable woman is an injustice that cries out for some kind of punishment in return. That's indisputable. And so similarly, maybe the least manly chapter in the Bible is uh, Genesis 19. That's the city of Sodom. That's the story when Lot's house is surrounded by all the men who want to uh, have their way with the strangers. And Lot says, I'll send out my virgin daughters. You can have them instead. And anyone who reads that passage, especially men, immediately cannot think of Lot as anything but scum. Because it's repulsive, the idea that you would sacrifice uh, these women who are relying on their father for protection for the safety of men. It's an inversion of this idea that men are supposed to protect women. The point is that men who don't live up to a standard of manliness as far as society is concerned are monsters, animals, cowards, or creeps. This is sort of an ancient assumption. Now, like I said before, it's talked about that we're in a crisis of masculinity today. What does it mean to be a man? We're losing touch with what it means to be a man. Sometimes this is blamed on a variety of things, the loss of church wisdom or the feminist movement or the sexual revolution. All of those ideas are kind of wrong or not right enough. Feel free to come talk to me afterward. Um, mostly you can lay this at the feet of the fact that we as a society have advanced socially and technologically to a point beyond where these assumptions are obviously true. Men are stronger than women, yes, that's true, but strength is not strength anymore. You don't plow fields by hand anymore, you do it in a deck chair controlling a tractor with an iPad. You don't have to kill tigers anymore, we killed all the tigers. All the tigers are gone. Now our tiger problem is that we kind of like tigers around when they're not attacking us, and we're trying to preserve the handful that are left. And modern nations don't fight wars by needing to have big strong men swinging axes at each other. They usually have one person, guy or a girl, guy or a girl, a girl, um, crawl up on a hill and look at the enemy supply dump and then um, look through their binoculars and an A-10 warthog flies overhead and vaporizes the position. And the scout goes, yeah, you got him, and then goes home. Physical strength has a great deal of value still, but considerably diminished, way less than it's ever had. And more and more things are done by tools and machines and strength continues to lose its value. And that means men don't have to work themselves to death to be of value to society anymore. Hooray, that's a pretty good thing. 
It means that women and the elderly and children and even men are generally protected and made safe by the strength of their police and their army and their culture that embraces compassion broadly. That's also a good thing. So how does a man know if he is being a man anymore? How does society know how to praise him and encourage him for being a man? Honestly, they don't. And men start to feel anxious and useless, and they look for alternative ways to prove themselves as a man in society. This is why we have 10 times as many men in, women, uh, men in jail as women, because men do stupid things to prove they are men to someone. And if they can't find some way to prove they are men to someone, that they're respectable as a man, they may often end up depressed or hostile or aimless or homeless. And this is why we have three times as many Australian men as women across all states and territories who take their own lives. And every time you hear about a mass shooting, I don't think they can recall one ever that was a woman. At the bedrock of this problem is what was valuable about men historically that was worthy of praise is now less valuable and less and less easy to praise. Most jobs don't require great physical strength or labor or risk, because, and we're working hard on machines to make those that are left easier to do. Now all that exists to define manhood is the third part of this equation. This idea that men can be dangerous if they don't control themselves, if they're not willing to be sacrificial enough. Masculinity kind of gets reduced to that single idea. And that's how you get a generation that tells its women that they can be anything they want to be, including a vessel for new life in the world, and tells its men they can be anything they want to be, but they have a tendency to degenerate into animals and monsters, so watch yourself. And that's the state of play that we're kind of in as a society. It's a pretty serious crisis to be in. And like I said, there's a lot of discussion on this topic, there's a whole lot going on there. But I wanted to take a couple of ideas about masculinity from culture and see where they match up with the Bible and talk about them a bit today and encourage us to discuss that more, I guess, in our own times, in our home groups, in our homes, and see if they have anything to offer us. Not just about how strength is used, but about what it is to be a man and how people have comprehended that throughout history. What alternatives do we have to just these old assumptions that don't seem to work anymore? And I've got three to offer you, and the first one uh, I call the balanced man. Uh, and it's rare that I get to justify the reading of a poem to the church, but I get to inflict it upon you today. Um, Rudyard Kipling, you may or may not know, he's a famous author and a poet. He wrote The Jungle Book, among other things. He wrote a poem called If. Uh, it was written as if he was talking to his son, who was 13 at the time, who later died in World War I. This poem is from 1910. It's about what it means to be a man. It goes like this. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you but make allowance for their doubting too, if you can wait and not be tired by waiting, or be lied about, don't deal in lies, or being hated, don't give way to hating, yet don't look too good nor talk too wise, if you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same, if you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to broken and stoop and build them up with worn out tools, 
If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve you long after they are gone and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue or walk with kings and not lose the common touch. If neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you. If all men count with you, but none too much. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything in it. And which is more, which is more you will be a man, my son. Now Kipling's image is kind of inspirational to hear, but it's a restatement of an old idea that a man should be defined by having these broad, balanced, manly virtues. He should be willing to risk, but not reckless. He should be able to hold a conversation with people more powerful than him, but not only those, also those who are less powerful than him, and be humble in both those circumstances. He should have imagination, but not be lost in imagination. It's the idea that the world is wild and changing and varied, and a man's real strength is not just in his capacity to overpower physical obstacles and challenges in a way that a woman can't. It's in a special ability to remain kind of measured and objective and flexible, so whether life is shoveling diamonds or dung at you, you know whether to catch or dodge. And this is not an unbiblical idea. If you read particularly the early chapters of Proverbs, Solomon is preoccupied with warning his son about the danger of being carried off by impulsiveness and desire and overbearing passion. This is the best thing a man can do, more or less, at least as far as these guys are concerned, to be restrained and to be wise. And it certainly makes men more valuable to women because, and this is a generalization, generalizing alert, women experience emotions at a higher intensity than men do. Men usually don't get to be as happy as women are when they're happy, and they don't usually get to be as upset as women are when they are upset. This means in matters of empathy and social decency, sometimes men have to submit to our wives and their superior instincts. But it also means when a disaster happens or some uncertainty occurs on the shock of loss and change, that hits a woman harder and a good man is capable of being reliable and supportive for her during that time, whatever it happens to look like. And that's not a bad idea of manliness. Maybe one worth remembering. Second idea I have for you here is the tough guy. It kind of speaks for itself, but I'll speak about it anyway. Raymond Chandler is a famous author. He writes hard-boiled detective novels. Um, he wrote books through the 30s and the 50s about tough men operating in a tough world. Uh, he represents in his characters an idea that the world and its greatest threats are moral hazards, and that a man who is unwary or insufficiently tough will find himself very quickly not only turned weak, but resentful and spiteful and not worthy of really being called a man. And he has a famous quote that encapsulates the kind of heroes he wrote about. And it's an idea of what he thought was the ideal manhood. And it goes like this. It says, down these mean streets, a man must go who is not himself mean, who is neither tarnished nor afraid. He is the hero he is everything. He must be a complete man and a common man and yet an unusual man. He must be, to use a rather weathered phrase, a man of honor, by instinct, by inevitability, without thought of it, and certainly without saying it. He must be the best man in his world and a good man for any world. He will take no man's money dishonestly and no man's insolence without a due and dispassionate revenge. 
He is a lonely man and his pride will be that you will treat him as a proud man. will be very sorry that you ever saw him. The story is this man's adventure in search of a hidden truth. And it would be no adventure if it did not happen to a man fit for adventure. And if there were enough like him, the world would be a very safe place to live in without becoming too dull to being worth lived in. Now Chandler's tough guys are all about justice. They're living in a world which is corrupt and warped and the only justice it offers is the kind that they go after themselves. And the beautiful things in that world, the softness of women or the innocence of children, only exist because men like him are willing to sacrifice themselves to make sure that they are safe and untainted by the world. They're constantly being shot at, chased, harassed, beaten up and knocked unconscious because they're trying to be a source of good in a world that has no tolerance for good men. And Jesus Christ is the ultimate good. And he warns his disciples in John chapter 15 that the world will hate them because they represent him who they hated first. And Paul says in Ephesians 5 that husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church in that they would die for her. And the natural addition of these two things is that if living for Christ provokes the world to any kind of hardship against you and those you love, be it violent or otherwise, men have a duty to protect, especially the women, but all those who are vulnerable, because manhood is a representation of God in the value he places on those he loves and his willingness to sacrifice. And part of being a man is a willingness to be tough and to do what is painful and hard because the world gets a little bit worse for every wrong left unrighted and a man needs to be tough enough to be pure and good without becoming tainted by compromise and sin. And the world is not going to make it any easier for him. That's the tough guy. Last one, the knight or the chivalrous man. Now we know chivalry a little bit. We mostly think of chivalry as a thing that people do when they are dating if they are trying to be especially, well, I don't know, old-fashioned, I guess. Chivalry, it's a code by which the Christian knight or noble conducted himself in the Middle Ages, which made him worthy of being at a station above others. There's no single official code for chivalry because even though there are legends of King Arthur's round table and forming the knighthood there, there was never really a time where a bunch of knights got together to decide what it meant to redefine manliness as this higher thing. But the short tale of this complicated history is that over time, nations adopted Christianity as their official religion. The world grappled with having kings and lords who were believed to be given their power by God to use that responsibly. And the philosophy and religion of people living for the servant king, all of that developed all at once and became normal to expect certain elevated behaviors from people in power, from knights who received special honors and recognition and admiration. Strength alone is not enough to be a knight, a knight who is the archetype of a good man that everyone really should aspire to be even if they weren't born into it. A good man had to conduct himself righteously in all areas of life to be worthy of the title. And religious leaders at the time looked not only to Jesus, but also to biblical heroes like David in their best moments for inspirations on how to teach a knightly manhood. And in all the Arthurian tales and legends, there's a variety of specific lists, but uh, the common commands given to the men who were knights upon which their knighthood depended tend to fall into three simple categories, and that's 
But due to the countrymen and fellow Christians, that's a knight needs to cultivate these virtues that serves his neighbors, courage, valor, mercy, protection for the weak and the poor and loyalty to the earthly law that they are serving, that they pledge to serve, willingness to sacrifice one's life for a king or for a beggar. A duty to God, being faithful to the teaching of the church, to protect the innocent and their innocence, to champion good against evil, obeying God above the allegiance to any earthly lord or possible gain. And third, a duty to women. And this is what most people think of when they hear of chivalry, but it's the idea, once again, that in the world we live in, women are especially vulnerable compared to men, and therefore a knight should be, first, loyal to one lady, and then after her, all women generally. Gentleness and graciousness to all women should be shown because a knight should recognize that women are weaker than men, but not less than men. Now, what do we do with all this? How are men supposed to think about ourselves today and how are mothers and fathers supposed to raise their sons? Should they be balanced and resourceful first or tough and packed with grit or uplifting and inspirational? And the biblical answer is, maybe disappointingly, we are not actually given a roadmap specifically for this. We have moral commands we are meant to live by and obey, and we have Jesus' lived example. But Jesus' lived example is his obedience to his Father that we should all follow. It's not an especially manly attribute in any way. It's something that men and women are expected to do all together. And it's not specifically the way that his life was lived in the world that we are to follow in a manly sense. He lived a fairly unusual life, and I'm not sure we would want all the men in our lives to wander around with all their unemployed friends, scabbing food off people, infuriating religious leaders, and going to jail. But we can't ignore the crisis of masculinity because it's not getting any easier to figure this out. And men and boys are going to suffer along with it as they're presently suffering, along with all the women who love and depend on them. But the verse that we read at the start of tonight's sermon, I think, is a great stone to lay in the foundations of any discussions we have about what it means to be a man, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, this is a biblical command given to Israel, not specifically men, but it's applicable to individuals and especially to men. Justice is, the, is to make wrong things right. Mercy is to make suffering bearable for people. Walking humbly with God is to do these things acknowledging that we're going to do them badly sometimes. But ultimately our identity is not in the fact that we are performing in an area of manhood, but it's in our identity as sons of God. And if that ultimate identity is secure for men, that they are sons of God first, secured in their faith in God, then the pursuit of the secondary identity that we are men in a difficult world, that's something that we can pursue and puzzle out together without being crushed by failure and uncertainty. We can get the important thing right and sort out the rest. So I have a twofold challenge for you if you are game this week. If you are a man, if you are young or old, do you have some kind of code that you live by or principles that you live by or things that you just believe that you need to do or to be as a man that are above and beyond simple obedience to God's goodness and his word? You probably do even if you've never really thought about it or written it down. But I want to challenge you this week to think about it and then write it down. Make a list of things that you believe that make a man what a man is. It's a particularly good thing to do for fathers and sons and brothers to do them separately and then come together and compare notes 
Fathers might be shocked or impressed by the values that they have accidentally taught to their sons or alarmed to see that maybe you've never mentioned one that you actually find pretty important. If you come to a good agreement about it, then maybe a nightly code for the men in your family would be a good thing to have on the wall and to teach kids and grandkids about as they grow into it. It's not enough for us just to say, be Christ-like. We have to talk about and teach what it means to be Christ-like as men today in this country. And ladies, this concerns what's being taught to your sons and the boys and men in your family and in your life, so you can do this too, just at that kind of one level removed. What do you women recognize as the kind of qualities you want to see in the men in your life? Especially regards to how men treat women. And then if the guys in your family have put together their ideas for a code, then maybe you can take a minute to proofread it for them and offer what you've come up for. Once you have that list or that code or that standard of masculine behavior or whatever you want to call it, you can write it up somewhere a little bit more formally and cleanly. You'll probably want to come back to it later and adjust it and add things as you remember things or encounter things. But once you have that, you actually have a template for accountability that you can use when you're reflecting on your own as a man or meeting with someone who's holding you accountable. But take it seriously and write it down. And when you come up with it, when you've committed it to paper, I'd love you to email it to me or um, give me a printed copy. I'd love to talk about it with you. It's important for us to start thinking about this seriously. There might not be a single right code of manhood, but we should write them down for our house anyway. We may never come up with a final, verified, scientific formulation of what it means to be a true man, but if we earnestly seek with the blessing of the Holy Spirit, then we'll definitely become better and better equipped and more inspired to be the godly men that we were meant to be when we started this journey. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your son and the fact that by the redeeming power of his sacrifice, we can approach you with the honest desire to become better followers of you. And especially, Lord, we thank you tonight. And we pray for those men and those boys who are trying to be better followers of you in a world that has never existed like this before. Guide every one of them as they try and grapple with how to seek your justice and love your mercy and to walk humbly with you. Bless the women in our lives as they encourage and inspire their men to step up and grow towards you. And may we each seek to be men and women after your example, secure in the knowledge that our ultimate identity is not just as men and women, but as sons and daughters of God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.